10 of my favorite papers on the science of learning and thinking. I've shared some reading lists based on the research that I've been doing for my upcoming book, but in addition to the about 140 or so books I've read for the project, I've also read about 500 scientific papers. And while most academic papers don't make for lively reading, the best are fascinating. So today I'd like to share a selection of some of the papers that had a significant influence on my thinking and might do the same for you. Number one, why minimal guidance during instruction does not work. An analysis of the failure of constructivist, discovery, problem-based, experiential, and inquiry-based teaching by Paul Kirchner, John Sweller, and Richard Clark. A major debate in educational research concerns the relative merits of direct instruction versus methods that rely on exploration, problem-solving, or experiential learning, often called constructivist teaching approaches. Constructivism has an intuitive appeal. Students are often bored and disengaged in lectures. They fail to transfer what they learn to real life. Real life involves active effort and problem-solving, whereas so much of traditional schooling seems to be regurgitation of memorized facts. The authors here argue that those intuitions are misguided. The research favors strongly guided forms of instruction. Methods in which skills are carefully explained and taught consistently outperform methods that rely on students discovering, inventing, or creating their own solutions. Now, this paper attracted enough controversy that an entire book was created with various experts weighing in on both sides. Ultimately, I think those favoring direct instruction made the better case, but the debate is almost certainly not over. Number two, Conditions for Intuitive Expertise, A Failure to Disagree by Daniel Kahneman and Gary Klein. How good are experts? The two authors of this paper devoted their research careers to this question and have come to somewhat different conclusions. Daniel Kahneman is famous for his work on heuristics and biases. His studies show how faulty our typical reasoning is, even in areas where we have extensive experience. Other research also shows that experts often perform poorly despite having considerable confidence. Gary Klein, in contrast, has spent years studying top performers in naturalistic environments. His work with firefighters found that they often quickly make the right decision without stopping to weigh costs and benefits. Now, despite their differences, the duo actually agree on much. Intuitive expertise is only possible when we're in favorable learning environments. There must be highly valid cues that indicate the nature of the situation, and we must have an opportunity to learn from those cues through instruction and rapid feedback. Number three, when and where do we apply what we learn? A Taxonomy for Far Transfer by Susan Barnett and Stephen Cece. Transfer is undoubtedly the most important issue in education. We're engaging in transfer whenever we learn something in one setting and apply it in another. Thus, the utility of any school, book, course, or training experience hinges on transfer. Now, despite this, many more studies report failure of transfer than robust successes, and the causes of this have been endlessly debated. Barnett and Cece review some of the research while adding that what we call transfer can really be broken down into several different dimensions, such as transfer between domains, for instance, learning about exponential growth in a biology class and then applying it to the stock market, transfer between contexts, so for instance, learning to multiply in school and then applying that at the grocery store, transfer over time, so learning something in ninth grade and then applying it in your working life decades later. Now, my opinion is that resolving questions about transfer is so difficult because they're actually questions about how the mind works. 
Knowing how much transfer is possible hinges directly on how the mind represents skills and knowledge in neural tissue. Until a consensus theory emerges, transfer will continue to attract debate. Number four, self-efficacy toward a unifying theory of behavioral change by Albert Bandura. Classic theories of motivation focused on the relationship between outcome expectations and our willingness to act. Under these theories, we take actions we believe will be rewarded. Bandura modified this by suggesting another variable. Do we believe that we can actually execute the action needed to get the result? If our self-efficacy is low, we may think that success is valuable, but still fail to find the motivation to take action. Bandura posited four contributors to self-efficacy, too weak and too strong. Now, the two weak ones were bodily arousal, so being agitated can undermine our confidence, and social persuasion, so being cheered on or told we can do something can modestly increase our self-efficacy. But the two strong ones were vicarious experience, so watching someone else succeed at something can convince us that we can do it as well, and personal performance, probably the most important, was that succeeding at something is very compelling evidence that we can actually perform the action we need to. Number five. The Two Sigma Problem, The Search for Methods of Group Instruction as Effective as One-on-One -on -one Tutoring by Benjamin Bloom. In this classic paper, Benjamin Bloom claims that students with one-on-one -on -one tutoring can perform two standard deviations better than an appropriate baseline. Now this suggests that substantial learning gains are possible. However, it's also impractical because the education system can hardly afford one teacher per student. So Bloom's challenge was to see if there were any pedagogical techniques that could approach the gains seen with tutoring, but apply to a large classroom. Bloom believed that he had found the answer in mastery learning. In this approach, students are given many interim tests. So those who fail to master the material are given new explanations, practice, and an opportunity to try again. The idea is that catching difficulties early will prevent them from becoming ongoing problems. Now, while most meta-analyses of mastery learning put the effect size closer to half a standard deviation, a far cry from the two sigma that Bloom sought, this is still a relatively strong effect. Number six, blind variation and selective retention in creative thought, as in other knowledge processes, by Donald Campbell. Drawing on an analogy to biological evolution, Campbell argues that randomness is an overlooked variable in learning and creative thinking. He argues that all knowledge generation proceeds by, first, a trial and error process to induce some kind of knowledge about the world. So as with evolution, we try things out and retain what works. Second, by using previously acquired knowledge, we can substitute that instead of trial and error and guessing. So once you uncover a valid pattern about the world, you can apply it without need to just try things out randomly. And finally, that even in this applying of previously acquired knowledge, there's variation and randomness in what we actually use and what we remember, generating further possibilities. So this suggests that much of what we associate with inventive creativity is simply acquiring a relevant set of knowledge associated with the field and then trying out a lot of stuff and keeping what works. Number seven, antagonism between achievement and enjoyment in ATI studies by Richard Clark. Aptitude treatment interactions, ATI, are when the same learning technique elicits different effects in students with different prior abilities. So a common finding in ATI studies is that low ability students learn much better with highly structured approaches, whereas higher ability students can sometimes benefit more from a less structured environment. One explanation seems to be that if you lack the necessary knowledge and skills, guidance ensures that you master the material. 
Still, if you've already learned them, then the challenging open-ended environments give you practice applying what you need to know in varied situations. Now, it would seem reasonable to expect students to opt for the method that works best for them. So, low-ability students would recognize their difficulties and seek structure, and high-ability students would opt for more challenging assignments. Except, when Clark reviewed the ATI literature, he found the opposite. Students tend to prefer the method that works less well for them, often unaware that it hinders their achievement. So one possible explanation is that learning in this way is effortful, and we enjoy learning methods that seem to save effort, even if they undermine our eventual achievement. Number eight, long-term working memory by Anders Ericsson and Walter Kinch. Few concepts are as central to the science of learning as working memory. Our mental bandwidth is limited, and we can only keep in mind a few things at a time. So given that we can only hold a few things in working memory at once, how do we actually perform complicated tasks? One popular theory is chunking. So through experience, we learn to recognize whole patterns of information as a single unit, allowing us to keep more in our heads at once. So an example would be remembering a seven-digit phone number is really hard, but we can easily recall our own phone number. Erickson and Kinch review evidence that suggests chunking is insufficient to explain really truly elite levels of expert performance. For example, experts seem strangely impervious to interruptions. So if you're reading a story with distractor sentences inserted, comprehension of the story itself remains largely intact. This starkly contrasts with typical memory experiments where distractors completely wipe out the memory for a task. Erickson and Kinch argue that as we gain skill in an activity, we can get better at using our long-term memories as a form of working memory, effectively expanding our capacity, but only for familiar tasks. Number nine, does learning to read improve intelligence? By Stuart Ritchie, Timothy Bates, and Robert Plowman. Keith Stanovich was among the first to propose that reading ability could bootstrap intelligence. Now, the logic of this hypothesis is compelling. Much of the world's knowledge is only available through reading. Reading ability tends to be self-reinforcing, so good readers tend to get more practice than poor ones, which make them better at it. And by reading more, people can learn more things and thus become smarter. The study by Ritchie and others explores this hypothesis further by examining how early reading ability impacts later intelligence. They studied identical twins to control for genetic differences in intelligence, and then the researchers found that twins with higher reading ability showed greater improvements in intelligence over time compared to their sibling. Number 10. Eliciting Self-Explanations Improves Understanding by Michelin Chi, Nicholas Delu, Mei Hong Choi, and Christian Lavancher. I've long been a fan of what I call the Feynman Technique. Take a complicated concept or procedure and explain it as if you were teaching it to someone else. Thus, it was interesting to come across formal research on self-explanations. In this experiment, the researchers encouraged students to explain what they were learning. They found that engaging in self-explanation tended to increase students' understanding of the material. Now, my preferred explanation for this effect is attention. When you read an explanation, you generally don't have much motivation to test whether or not you really understand it. In contrast, when you generate an explanation, you get clear feedback about what you know and what you don't. And then this feedback returns your attention to the source material or the problem to work out what was missing, resulting in a richer understanding than if you had stuck to reading alone. 
So these are some of the papers that I found most interesting, I'm, although there were lots that I could have included that I didn't in this particular edition. It was already getting long enough. So if you're interested in this, you can go to the blog where I have links to the original papers. And if you're interested in this kind of discussion of some scientific research, then I'd be happy to do one again in the future. Leave some thoughts in the comments. Thanks for listening to this episode. More episodes like this can be found by searching for Scott Young Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and on most other podcasting apps available on your smartphone. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider rating my show as it helps other people find out about it. More of my work can be found on my website at scotthyoung.com.